This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Welcome to Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Leonard DiLorenzo. Today we talk with a Catholic philosopher whose work brings her in contact with evolution the image of God, and extraterrestrials. Marie George is professor of philosophy at St. John's University. In addition to holding a PhD in philosophy, she also holds master's degrees in biology and in pastoral theology. Her interests lie primarily in the areas of natural philosophy and philosophy of science. She's received several awards from the John Templeton Foundation for her work in science and religion, and she was co-recipient of a grant from the Center for Theology and Natural Sciences for an interdisciplinary project entitled The Evolution of Sympathy and Morality. Professor Jord has authored over 70 peer-reviewed articles and two books, Christianity and Extraterrestrials, A Catholic Perspective, and Stewardship of Creation as well as editing The Essential Guide to Catholic Spiritual Classics. Professor George, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So as I mentioned in the intro, you've worked on a pod project devoted to the evolution of sympathy and morality. And you know, to many people, I imagine sympathy and morality seem like givens rather than something that might develop. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how these are matters in the studies of evolution. Sure. Well, first, I have to say I don't think that the most essential aspect of morality evolves. So I was working with um, a person who was a biologist and a theologian, and we didn't entirely agree on this point. Okay. So I don't think that there's morality without moral principles. Mm -hmm. And only a rational being is capable of formulating moral principles. However, I do think that there are other abilities that are needed for a species of animal um, to have morality. And I think that these other abilities can evolve. So, for example, justice involves identifying and remembering the individual with whom one interacts. Um, how could you honor your mother if you couldn't remember what your mother looked like? Right. Right? That, that or, would be the greatest way of dishonoring your mother is forgetting what she looked like, perhaps. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And similarly, if I can't remember who I borrowed something from, how could I return what I borrowed? Mm. <laughs> so there, there are a lot of things that have to do with justice that depend on the ability to recognize specific individuals. Hmm. And some non-rational animals have the ability to recognize other individuals and others don't, okay? Okay. So, believe it or not, vampire bats can recognize other individuals. Other individual so, vampire bat bats? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, not, not people, but no. other bats. <laughs> and what happens is when um, the bats go to suck blood out of animals, not all the bats leave the cave. Some bats stay in the cave. And the ones that went out and sucked the blood they come back and they regurgitate some of the blood to the ones who stayed in the cave. Now, that's gross, but day, we, can, we should continue. <laughs> on another day, then right. the other, the bat that stayed in the cave goes out. Uh -huh. Well, the bat that regurgitated blood to it now expects that bat to regurgitate blood in return. In oh, exchange. yeah. So and an exchange of favors. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. And if it doesn't, it's all over between them. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So they recognize, you know, I regurgitated to this one, but this one didn't, you know, regurgitate back to me, and then they don't associate with that bat anymore. Well, now we have all the Twilight fans are going to be uh, tuning into our show because I think we've now brought together maybe a conversation about morality and vampires. Um, How did you – is that something that you studied, the bats, these vampire bats themselves, or is this existing uh, scientific knowledge? No, it exists in the literature. Yeah, it exists in the scientific literature. Excellent. Um, I I don't study bats. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The only thing I ever studied personally were fruit flies. Okay. Um, So, but then another thing, another ability, um, as far as justice is concerned, Mm -hmm. is the ability is to be able to distinguish what is done accidentally and what is done intentionally. Okay. okay. So in a qualified way, you can, you can see this ability on the part of certain animals like chimpanzees. And if you think about it, honestly, my, my opinion is that even dogs seem to treat little kids differently than they treat adults yeah. in, in, in this sense that so dog, little kids will do things to dogs that are like, whoa, if an adult did that, the dog would bite. Right. But dogs usually show a lot of patience with little kids. At hmm. least that's my impression. Okay, so I think that they, they distinguish between the little kid just doesn't know any better and an adult who is torturing them. Right. But be that as it may, there are definitely experiments that indicate that um, animals in some sense judge whether behavior of another animal is intentional so two experiments. One, they have um, two chimpanzees each in a, in a cage, and between the two chimpanzees is a table. And on the table, um, the experimenter will put some food near the one chimpanzee and some food near the other chimpanzee. And the, each chimpanzee has um, a rope that it can pull the table legs from underneath the table, and then the table just falls down, and yeah. the food falls on the floor, and they can't get the food when it's on the floor. Mm-hmm. So if one of the chimps reaches over and steals food from the other chimp, the other chimp you know, takes that rope and jerks the table <laughs> and makes the food all fall on the floor. Okay? But what's interesting is that if in the same setup, if a human being reaches over and takes the food the chimp doesn't pull the table from underneath, you know, both of them. Oh, really? It, re- it realizes, well, it's not the other chimp's fault. You know, the other chimp didn't do anything. Ah. The human did that. And so it, it can distinguish between who is doing what and whether they're doing it intentionally or not. Um, and then another experiment, they had two experimenters, one who was the clumsy experimenter and the other one who was the mean experimenter. And so the clumsy one would would get close to the chimpanzee's cage with food and then trip and drop the dish of food outside the cage where the chimp couldn't reach it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other one stood in front of the cage, kind of went, yeah, yeah, before the chimp, (laughs) and then explicitly dumped the food where the chimp couldn't reach it. Yeah. And so then later, later the chimp had an opportunity to interact or to choose between which of those two human beings the chimp would interact with. And I forget the exact experimental setup, but basically the chimp didn't want to have anything to do with the one who, who intentionally dumped the food, whereas the chimp would, you know, interact with the, with the person who was just apparently clumsy. Hmm. So 
So they're making you know, judgments about who to interact with, who to continue yeah. in relationship with based on previous behavior, who they sh- what kind of, you know, person or animal they've shown themselves to be. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't think that they have an abstract concept, intentional versus accidental, mm-hmm. but I think that concretely they can distinguish an intentional act from an unintentional act. And we need to have this ability as well if we're going to reward and punish people fairly. Hmm. So how... if, we can't, if we can't tell the difference between an accident and what's intentional, then how could we, you know, how could we punish the child um, fairly when it could just be an accident? Absolutely. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We're talking with Dr. Marie George of St. John's University. Um, where do you see some of the additional applications of that that sort of uh, distinction between the intentionality and the and the accidental nature? I, me- I mean, it, already coming to my my mind is in terms of a criminal justice system and um, whether you know who's responsible and for what. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think the, both punishment of, uh, and reward of, of children, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, of course, at the legal level, too, you have to be able to judge intentionality. I, and I mean, also, you, simply your examination of conscience, mm. you know, certain things can have bad outcomes, and sometimes people have a tendency to want to blame themselves for certain things because of the bad outcome, but then they have to ask, you know, well, you know, did I do that deliberately, or was it due to to ignorance on my part for which I'm not responsible? Right. So I think that again, sometimes we have an obligation to to know that certain things are, are right or wrong, but in other cases we don't have an obligation to know those things. It wasn't our responsibility, and we do things by accident. Mm. So I think it's really important for judgment both of ourselves and of other people. And then well, how we reward and punish them to be able to know, well, this is an accident and this is intentional. Yeah. Now, I mentioned that this project was uh, sort of dedicated to the evolution of sympathy and morality. And I want to focus on the sympathy part of that um, because it seems to me and it may seem to others that sympathy might not easily fit into the theory of evolution by natural selection. If this is the evolution of sympathy and morality, especially when we're considering, let's say, the survival of the fittest, would it not be true that sympathy much of the time would be seen as weakness, or is there a way in which it's seen as strength, or does it just not even fall into this kind of category? Well, actually, a lot of work has been done showing that um, cooperation between animals actually increases their fitness. Hmm. Do so, they know about this in our political system, or is this would be breaking news there, perhaps? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I forget the title of Franz Duvall is the one who has done a lot of um, research here. And I know that he has some books that have like political overtones, like we should we should act like the chimps, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's elevate our behavior to the chimps in the political arena. Yeah, because they they are cooperative. Just to give uh, some some examples, mm-hmm. um, I mean, the whole notion of sympathy is the idea that you become distressed when others are distressed. Okay, yeah. like in in Latin, the word is misericordia. Mm-hmm. So it's your the heart is experiencing the misery of another. And then we can talk about sympathetic behavior when we when then we act motivated by sympathy. But some examples are with um, rhesus monkeys. They were trained to pull chains to get food. Okay. Yeah. Now, if they hooked up though that chain to something that while it gave them food, it shocked the rhesus monkey in the cage next door. 
Okay. Uh-huh. So they pull the chain, they get food, but the, the monkey next door gets shocked. Right. When they realize that they're causing the shock, they'll stop doing it, hmm. even though they're not getting food. Okay. And and you might then ask, well, are they are they motivated by wanting to help this other chimp? Or are they simply motivated by wanting to alleviate the distress they feel? Because they get distressed yeah. when the other chimp is, like, screeching and so forth. Okay? And other examples of sympathetic behavior are, are found on the part of chimpanzees. So um, sometimes there's a, there's a fight between chimpanzees and one loses. Mm-hmm. And then some of the other chimpanzees will actually go to the loser and console it. Hmm. Well, and then another anecdote, um, there was a, a person named Nadia Coates who, who raised a chimpanzee, kind of as a child. And what she used to do sometimes is fake cry. And when she used to fake cry, the chimpanzee, even if it was way far away in the house, it would come running, and it would take her chin um, in its palm and lightly touch her face. And, and then it would... Um, it would turn around and look around and clench its toes, you know, mm. like there must be something that is, is causing this sadness or whatever. So, um, you know, again, animals have emotions and social animals' emotions drives cooperative behavior. And cooperative behavior, different types of helping behavior, mm-hmm. can increase fitness. As Duvall puts it, an animal, one animal by itself might be successful hunting a squirrel. But a group of animals could bring down a much larger prey, resulting in more food for each member of the group. So actually, cooperation is selected for in some cases. Hmm. It's not opposed to fitness. And then to the extent that sympathy drives helping behavior and cooperative behavior, it can be selected for. It actually is selected for. You know, going back to that first anecdote you you shared just here that, you know, when the one – uh, the one recognizes that the food they're getting comes at the expense of another, yeah. that they get shocked. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking in terms of, um, let's say, the ecological crisis. And I know you've written uh, a book, Stewardship of Creation. I wonder, you know, if you have reflections on how much of recognizing the responsibility of stewardship of creation is requires recognizing those who uh, are wounded or harmed by the acts of consumption of some of the rest of us. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true that most of us, and myself included, are oblivious of what our materialistic lifestyle is doing to people on other parts of the planet Mm -hmm. from so many points of view. I mean, like cell phones, and cell phones, there's so many precious metals, and these precious metals are mine. I mean, part of the problem is it's like slave labor, but another part of the problem is that oftentimes used are different types of toxic chemicals that the the people who then are mining are are exposed to. Right. You know, and we just think about, oh, well, I I need to have a cell phone like everyone else. And we don't think of, you know, what is happening because we're changing our our phone every couple of years, you know. Um, So, yeah, I think there are a lot of things that we're, we're ignorant of, but you know the the information is out there, and it, it's partly it's partly um, I think negligence on our part that we don't seek out this type of information. I mean, there are all types of different products that we we use on a regular basis, and there's information out how those things are produced and so forth that we need to be looking at. I mean, with farming, you know, with right. agriculture. Um, I mean, I th- personally think that every Catholic should should um, see the the documentary Food Inc. 
to, to find out where is our food coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's a reason why that chicken is so cheap. It's because they're torturing animals and they're exploiting the farmers who raise those chickens as a general rule. Um, so, yeah, I think that that is a big problem, that we don't make that connection that the rhesus monkeys make that, woo, what I'm doing, what I'm eating is actually having this negative effect on on another monkey. I wonder if, you know, the other side of that might be, um, though there is information out there for us and we could do more and should do more to find the the causes and the chain of production and who is on the other end. Unlike that anecdote, I wonder if uh, for us, so much of the information is intentionally hidden from us in a consumer market that we that we're meant to be kept from those who bear consequences on the other end. Yeah, I, I think that I think that that is true. I mean, it's not exactly the same point, but it's it's fairly closely related. Mm-hmm. Is in the United States, you you there's no law requiring the labeling of genetically modified ingredients in 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 food. Mm-hmm. In Europe, there is such labeling. But why is that? It's because there is a farmer lobby that thinks that the public is going to stop buying certain products and then their profits are going to go down if the consumer is inf- informed as to what is actually in that product. So I think that I think that there there I can't think of other examples off the top of my head, but I'm sure there are other examples mm-hmm. where um, exactly what the product does is hidden from us. Oh, actually, a good example is Roundup. Okay. Yeah. Now there, there's many, many countries that will not allow the use of Roundup. But when Roundup first came out, I bought some. I bought some because the Roundup people were telling us that it biodegrades into harmless things, and and you know it's all good. <laughs> but that it turns out not to be the case, mm. and and so you know oftentimes big chemical companies along with drug companies. Um, they they hire researchers to basically find what they want them to find, mm. and those things get published. And it, it, you know it's costly to do research, and it sometimes I mean in, in certain countries environmentalists have actually been killed <laughs> mm-hmm. because big oil doesn't want it to get out that they're contaminating a certain area and that sort of thing. Hopefully. That isn't happening in the United States, but I mean, if you just think about fracking, and, and I don't know about, I haven't read recently about fracking, but I know for a long time that the companies that do fracking would not reveal the the things that they were injecting into the earth. So we mm-hmm. didn't even know, you know, what was being done. If you don't know what's being done, well, how can you make a, ju- a reasonable judgment? You know, obviously, you can't, you know. So yes, I think there there is a lot of, for the sake of profit, hiding certain facts about the environment, lest, again, you know, people say, no, we can't use this. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We are talking with Dr. Marie George, professor of philosophy at St. John's University. Shifting topic, maybe just a little bit, but but maybe not as much as it might seem. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, your recent keynote lecture at the 2019 Annual Conference for the Society of Catholic Scientists where you address the question of what does made in the image of God mean? So I want to ask you your own question. What does it mean? How did you address it? Well, I addressed it first from a theological standpoint. So I simply presented the teaching of the Catholic Church as to what it means to be in the image of God. 
um, insofar as there's one God, because, I mean, there's another sense that we're in the image of God insofar as God is a trinity of persons. Mm -hmm. But insofar as there's one God, beings are said to be in the image of God when they possess an intellect and free will. And so we humans, we have these abilities in virtue of our rational soul, and then angels possess them in virtue of being purely spiritual beings. And mm-hmm. in, in to a room, let's say, of Catholic scientists, right? Is there a way in yeah. which you're drawing out what this, you know, what the scientific implications of this are? What does it mean uh, in the world of science to make that fundamental claim that this is what a human being is? Well, I think that natural philosophy and, and science are not independent endeavors. Mm-hmm. I think they're complementary endeavors. So I think that philosophy looks at the big picture and then science fills in the details so that we have a sharp picture of things. Mm. So I think that whether you're a scientist or not, it, it pertains to philosophy to look at what exactly is human nature. I don't think it, it's something that depends on looking at details like DNA or a particular skeleton or something like that. I think it depends on uh, a reflection on our everyday experience of what we do when we think and when we make choices. And that's something everyone does, not just scientists. Mm-hmm. But then I think what I, what I think that science does, and again, the beauty of science is how, is it, how it can give detail. So I don't think that there's a different definition of human being that's a philosophical definition or a theological definition and one that, that's a, a scientific definition. But I think what science does and that philosophy doesn't do is look for evidence whether a, a given species shows signs of possessing reason and free will. Okay? Yeah. So, I mean, philosophers don't dig up skeletons and various artifacts or examine DNA (laughs) samples, such as in Neanderthals. Right. Okay? They have a skull on their desk, but that's it. That's as far as it goes. (laughs) Pretty much. That's it. (laughs) So, scientists are the ones who determine, like, biological relationships between other hominids and contemporary humans. So, they're looking... Sometimes they have genetic material, they look at skeletons, morphology, and so forth. And they're the ones who track how different hominid groups have dispersed across the planet. Mm -hmm. And this is all really fascinating stuff, but this is what philosophers can't do. Right. Um, But I think that between the two, there's also like a discussion, well, what counts as evidence that a being is rational or that a being has free will? And I think... So those are discussions in which both philosophers and scientists have something to say. Ah, well, that actually brings us maybe to to another topic uh, of a bu- another book you wrote, which was on Christianity and extraterrestrials. Which you know, if you're asking what counts as evidence of you know what we might call a human being, or what counts as an evidence as evidence as a of a rational creature with intellect and will, um, we don't have any test cases yet of an extraterrestrial, but what were the interesting or important questions that you thought would arise when considering extraterrestrials in terms of Christianity? Well, we're, we're talking here about intelligent extraterrestrials. Sure. I, I personally, I personally... Who are listening to us, them. yes. Exactly. <laughs> the strangest um, of our listeners, how about that? Well, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, so... I mean, one question is whether the discovery of extraterrestrial life would show that Christianity is a myth, Mm. okay? Actually, a lot of people think that or thought that, and that was one of the the things that really provoked me to write the book. 
So just to name some of these people, one of the founders of the United States, Thomas Paine, holds that, and I quote, the two beliefs, meaning that they're intelligent extraterrestrials and Christianity, the two beliefs cannot be held together in the same mind. Hmm. And he who thinks that he believes in both has thought but little of either. Now, why would that be? Well, um, Robert Yastro, I think he's an astronomer, I'm not quite sure, but in a book called God for the 21st Century, suggests, and I quote, some of the older races of extraterrestrials might be superior in their moral and ethical values and religious beliefs. Hmm. Does this not create problems for the traditional Judeo-Christian view of the deity as being very much concerned with the affairs of one particular race of intelligent beings that existed on our planet? Hmm. End quote. And so Mark Twain makes a spoof of this in one of his works, and He's basically portraying Christ, you know, flying from one planet to another planet to another planet, dying over and over and over in his efforts to redeem these various E.T. races, you know. Right. And it, it, just, it just seems absurd to say, well, you know, the event in the universe is the coming of the second person on this planet Earth, you know. But there are really all these extraterrestrials out there that are also rational and free and so forth, but it, somehow it's all about us. So there. So Paine thinks that these two ideas are contradictory. Mm -hmm. You can't hold them both. Now, I think you can hold them both, okay, but I do agree that they are intention. And so, I, I mean, there are different arguments for why they're compatible, but one type of argument would be this, is that, okay, so humans are supposed to be special, okay, well, think about having children. When you have your first child, that's special, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. But does the fact that you have another child now mean that child number one isn't special anymore? Well, I'm the eldest in my family, so no. <laughs> the, the oldest is still very special. Exactly. More special. So, so <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's true that if the incarnation has occurred more than one time, then an an incarnation as such is not special because it's something that's happened more than once. Right. But an incarnation to us is still going to be special, even if an incarnation occurred to, to extraterrestrials. It's mm. still going to be a very special event to us. Indeed, it was our you know, our salvation began that way through the incarnation. Um, so, so the idea, I mean, they're special and they're special. So yeah. even if extraterrestrials were out there, the incarnation still would be special. But then the other the other question is, well, if extraterrestrial existence doesn't exclude the truth of Christianity, is, is extraterrestrial existence rendered more or less probable on the assumption that Christianity is true? Hmm. And, and this is like a really long story, because yeah. I go through every possible scenario. I mean, like if I'd give a lecture on it, it would take me half an hour. Yeah, to just to do that part. All the different possibilities, you <laughs> no, know. No, I think we've opened um, up a whole other conversation we're going to have to have at some point. Um, <laughs> Um, but, you know, and I think that's true. I think there is a whole conversation we should have here and especially thinking about the incarnation relative to extraterrestrial life or the possibility of it. And, you know, it seems to me that it, it really forces us to be clearer and more precise about what exactly do we claim in the incarnation that, uh, God who – the father who happens to be out there in space somewhere sent his son to come down to this planet or is it that – uh, from the side of the uncreated, the unbegotten son became a creature, which is significant for the whole cosmos. Um, 
So there's more, you know, there's, I think there's certainly more of a conversation we can have about this. Unfortunately, we're out of time for today. So my last duty is to thank you for joining us today, Dr. George. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks to everybody out there for joining us on Church Life today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners.